Would you pray with me one more time before we look into the Word? Lord, none of us would have any hope of a reconciled, peaceful, sweet, happy, eternal relationship with you apart from the truth that was just referred to and the working of faith in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and the instantaneous, in the twinkling of an eye, union with Christ and the removal of your wrath and the resting of your favor upon us forever. We wouldn't have a chance. And so, God, I pray now that you would cause that truth to be so plain in this message that it would be compelling, that the Holy Spirit would make it penetrate down to the very depths of everyone's soul so that it would become the root of everything that you plan for people for eternity. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most explosive, hard-hitting, controversial, grace-saturated, salvation-clarifying, Christ-exalting, gospel-advancing, Bible-defending books in the Bible is Galatians. Galatians was the book that blew up the uh, false teaching that was most prominent in the apostolic days, which is why the book of Galatians was written. It also proved to be the decisive book, I think, that blew up the prison that Pope and councils and tradition had built to jail the Bible for all those many centuries. Alongside Romans, the book of Galatians is, I think, the book that makes clearest in all the Bible the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as founded and taught with authority in the Bible alone. It is a great and powerful book. I hope it's very precious to you. So it's not surprising then that it was this book that put steel in Martin Luther's backbone when he had to stand against emperor and church and world and devil. <laughs> no, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear. Why? It's not surprising that this book put steel in his backbone when he was proclaiming the doctrine of justification by faith, because this book has something to say about not only justification by faith, but also Scripture alone as its foundation. So Tuesday, what, day after tomorrow, actually marks the very day, 500 years later, when Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, explaining and exposing the errors and 
mistakes of the Catholic Church. And we today are the beneficiaries of that courage, the steel that was in his backbone. Three years later, 1520, Pope Leo X condemned 41 of those 95 theses. That's pretty risky. The Pope had more power in those days than you can imagine. When Luther got that papal bull, as it was called, he didn't just not recant, he burned it. It's typical Luther reaction to his opponents. And on January 3rd, 1521, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, which means he could be executed by the emperor. However, he had a friend named Frederick the Wise in Germany who did not want him to be executed and tried to mediate by calling a, a, a council that they called the Diet of Worms in which he was presented with his heretical teachings and given a chance to repent and recant. And he took a 24-hour prayer retreat and came back instead of recanting with 11 responses. And I'm going to read you number 11. It's the most famous one and you will see what I mean by steel in his backbone. Since your serene majesty and your lordships require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit by faith, my faith either to pope or to council because it is clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way, brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, if you listen carefully to that statement, there, you, you see there are two things going on in the Reformation. Let me say a word about each one. The first thing that's going on in the Reformation is that teachers are rising up, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, dozens of others, teaching things that the Roman Catholic Church considered heresy. So there's a doctrinal issue going on. And at the core of those doctrinal disputes was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Scripture alone, and Christ as the righteousness and the penal substitution 
alone to the glory of God alone. That was at the core. Let me just say the doctrine of justification, and then we're going to later go to a passage later in Galatians. But what, what I mean when I say that, and what I believe, if Luther were here, he would say, amen, I like what you just said. I, I think it, it means this, that there are sinners, all of us, and we are not right with God. We're under the wrath of God. And the question is, how can a guilty sinner get into, get into, not, not the later developments that flow from it, but get into a relationship with God that is peaceful and reconciled and forgiven and accepted and counted as righteous so that forever God is 100% for us, never to be wrathful against us one minute for the rest of our lives. How, How do you get in there? And the answer of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. Justification is that divine act by which through our union with Christ, through faith alone, we are counted, because of Christ, righteous, and therefore loved, forgiven, accepted, and my favorite phrase that I use, having a God who is now 100, not 99.9. Many Christians live with the 98%. God is for me. And then they live the reality of their lives under the shadow of that 2%. And I'm saying that the doctrine of justification means that when you are united to Christ by faith alone, without any whiff of law-keeping, that union with Christ means God is now 100% on your side forever. Like it says in Jeremiah 32, He rejoices over us to do us good forever. And he so works in us that we fear him forever and can never fall away. To be sure, from that point on, our lives change. (laughs) Holiness and godliness become precious to us. We want to bring our lives into conformity to the one who created us and loved us and saved us. But all of that subsequent transformation is rooted in this justification. And if you get this backwards, if you say, I got to do some things, I got to be holy, I got to be godly, to get in there, you don't know the gospel yet, and you're not saved yet. So the big issue during the Reformation, right at the core, there are lots of other issues, but the big one is, how do you get in? How is he for me? 
He says, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So, courtroom, not guilty. Forever. That's what the argument was about. So that's the first thing. I said there were two things going on in the Reformation. The first thing is doctrinal issues. You can't get any more important than that. How can I not spend eternity in hell under the wrath of God, but eternity with Him in ecstatic, stand-on-your-head kind of joy forever? That's the issue. Second thing that was going on in the Reformation was, what's the basis of all that? Namely, what, what, what's the role of this book in our lives? And Luther and the others said, let me give you that last sentence again, I cannot submit my faith either to Pope or to counsel. If then I am not convinced by proof of Holy Scripture, I can't retract anything. So he was standing against Pope and councils and traditions and saying, I've got to see it here or I'm not going to recant. That's the second thing that was going on. The biblical foundation for all that glorious truth was at stake. And what he was doing, all the others were doing, was, was clearing away the additions to authority. So the Catholic Church is just fine saying this book has authority. And they would say the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, in his official office as leader of the church, has an equal authority. So with the councils. And this, this right here is not what the Roman Catholic Church believes. It is what the Reformation and the Protestant churches believe. So there was a massive shift in where you're going to look for the final decisive authority in this matter. And the reason, the reason this matters, I mean, I think sometimes we get into battles and we forget what we're fighting for. The reason there are always battles over the Bible and whether it's the final decisive authority in our lives is not because we want to be more shrill or more strident with our arguments, but rather so that we can be saved. If, if you don't have the truth at the center of this word as your last authority, if you don't have the truth of justification, you can't be saved. I'm not, I'm not walking around the world trying to get people to believe in the Bible because it's interesting. It's because I don't want people to perish. So the Bible matters because it is the, it's the repository of joy. <laughs> I quoted it a minute ago just in passing. I want you to know it wasn't my words, it was Luther's. He said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. <laughs> I would stand on my head for joy. I wonder if your children, you have kids, if they've ever seen you stand on your head for joy. Either you know, that or metaphorically. You know, like, 
jump up and down for joy? I mean, does, does Christianity feel to our next generation like it makes mom and dad happier than anything? That's the kind of home I grew up in. Fundamentalist home it was. Singing, singing in the front seat of the car on the way to Florida to do deep sea fishing. Now, I like deep sea fishing as a 14-year-old kid. But unforgettable is a mother and a father who sang. He said, um, I felt that I was altogether born again when he discovered this doctrine of justification. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise through open gates. I hope you live in paradise. Now. Now. He's for you. And not against you. And he's omnipotent and he's all wise. You're in paradise with cancer. Paradise. After divorce. Paradise. If you just weigh things the way they really are, that's true. That's true. We sang it through the storm, right? In paradise. Because my God is for me and not against me, who can separate me from the love of Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No! In all those things, I am more than conqueror. Why? Because of justification by faith on the basis of a solid authority. So, would you open your Bibles? <laughs> like, what are you? I spell, you're supposed to do exposition here. <laughs> we don't believe in Martin Luther here. We believe in the Bible. All right. Me too. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. This is the passage that put steel into Martin Luther's backbone when it came to standing here on the book instead of deferring to the most powerful person in the world at that time, the Pope. Let's read verses 6 through 9. You listen carefully for how he might have inferred such things from these words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you. Let him be accursed, as I have said before. So I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to, one, to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Now those last two verses there, verses 8 and 9, changed the world 500 years ago. He, look what he says. He doesn't just say, if false apostles from Jerusalem show up and preach another gospel, then let them be accursed. He doesn't just say, what? If Peter, James, and John show up here and preach another gospel, let them be accursed. He takes it all the way up to heaven. And himself, if I or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, let him be accursed. And you need to let that sink in because I guarantee you that if an angel showed up here 
right, standing right here, if he could fit, say he's about 10 or 12 feet tall, one wing touches you, one wing touches you, he's radiant, shining so bright, you have to go like this, most of you would be trembling on your feet, running out the doors, and suppose he says, you almost got the gospel right here, it's mostly by faith that you get into a right relationship with the God I represent. But you just need to add one or two things to faith to get it right. And I'm here to fix this pastor who's telling you wrong. You need to add, well, in Galatians situation, circumcision. Now, those of you who've been well taught the last five years or the rest of your life, I don't know where you come from, should say, without getting the kids upset at you, Mr. Angel, go to hell. That, that's, don't you think that's a fair paraphrase of this text? Let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. You could say it more gently by saying, go back where you came from. Because you didn't come from God. So you need to feel that. Paul said, if an angel shows up in Galatia and tweaks the gospel... To hell with the angel. That's what he says. This is, this is the most, I called it a hard-hitting book. It is the most hard-hitting epistle in the New Testament. It doesn't have any nice, sweet greeting at the front of it. He is livid at these false teachers in Galatia. He uses language over in chapter 5 that is R-rated. But I won't, I'll let your pastor handle that later. You wonder, you think Luther was a bad-mouthed guy. Paul had his moments, and I think there were spirit-anointed moments in Philippians 3, Galatians 5, to push language about as far as a Christian should push it, maybe farther. But he's speaking for God, and I'm in no position to criticize him. Now, somebody's going to say, whoa, 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 Paul, you... You're putting yourself in that category? Like, if I come with another gospel, you're the apostle. If you come and you say, I got it mostly right when I preached to you the gospel, but I didn't get it quite right. I went down to Jerusalem, talked with James, and we've, we've decided we've got some changes to make in the gospel. He says, Tell me to go to hell. That's what he said. Now, why can he say that? Look at verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not man's gospel. And when he delivered it, he delivered it as Christ's gospel. And therefore, whoever this new Paul is, Paul would not own the new Paul. So where did the steel come from in Luther's backbone when he was standing before the emperor? and wouldn't submit to popes or councils, even though it might cost him his life. 
It came from Galatians 1.8. And to show you that that's the way Luther handled Galatians 1.8, and I think rightly, let me read you a little section from his commentary on Galatians 1.8. It goes like this. For the overthrowing of this wicked and blasphemous doctrine, in other words, the doctrine that is rejecting faith alone as the means of justification, that doctrine that says you've got to add in a few bits of law-keeping here. And then faith plus a few bits of law-keeping gets you right with God. He says, the overthrowing of this wicked and blasphemous doctrine you have here in this text. He's referring to Galatians 1.8. This text, like a thunderbolt, wherein Paul subjects both himself and an angel from heaven and the doctors upon earth and all the other teachers and masters whatsoever under the authority of Scripture. This queen ought to rule and all ought to obey and be subject to her. They ought not to be master, judges, arbiters, but witnesses, disciples, and confessors of the Scripture, whether it be the Pope, or Luther, or Augustine, or Paul, or an angel from heaven. Neither ought any doctrine to be taught or heard in the church beside the pure Word of God, that is to say the Holy Scripture. Otherwise, accursed be both teachers and hearers together with their doctrine. That courage, that stand here alone came from Galatians 1.8. So this is, this is your first of five messages, I suppose, on the solas. And if you need a text where you go to think in terms of sola scriptura, Luther would take you there to Galatians 1. When the scripture was released from the prison of Pope and and Council and Tradition and Latin into English, um, it ran through the nations, and it ran and triumphed. Just one little historical tidbit to underline the, 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 the relationship between Bible and justification. 1516, that's a year before 1517, when the... When the uh, Theses were nailed. 1516, Erasmus printed for the first time in history a Greek New Testament. In other words, the New Testament in the original language. Up till then, they're all written out by hand, the Greek manuscripts, and you have the Vulgate, the Latin. And the church would not allow any translations into the common language of the people. It is appalling when you read Tyndale, for example, in his pilgrimage that the church killed people for reading the Bible in English. Not believing false things, just memorizing the Lord's Prayer in English and a family is burned at the stake. That's all they did. This is the kind of period in which we're talking. I mean, if you, if, you hear the, if you hear the reformers sometimes speak with harshness, give them a break. They're burning people alive for reading the Bible in English. Read Daniel 
um, David Danielle's biography of William Tyndale. You'll never be the same again. You'll, you will never look at this book the same again. So, Luther said, without the languages, and he meant Greek and Hebrew, we could not have received the gospel. If the languages had not been made available to me, I could not have been positive about the true meaning of the Word of God. I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in obscurity of the cloister. Pope, sophists, anti-Christian empire would still have remained unshaken. So that the point is, the book, as it came closer and closer available, instead of being imprisoned in tradition and counsel and pope and Latin, as it became available, salvation came. That's what we care about it for. Now, let me, let me as we move toward the end, let me try to connect sola scriptura, Bible alone as our final decisive foundation, and justification by faith. Look at the connection between verses 7 and 8 here in Galatians 1. Verse 7, not that there is another one, another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So that verse is about the gospel. And I'm going to show you in a minute, but right now I'm just going to say it. The gospel is justification by faith alone in Galatians. There are other dimensions to the gospel. That's the central one, especially in Galatians. So when he's talking about there is no other gospel, he means there is no other way to get right with God than justification by faith alone. So verse 7 is about the gospel. Now verse 8 comes in to say, and don't worry, it'll never change, right? Anybody comes along that says, We've got to fix it. We've got to change it. We've got to alter it. They're from hell. And so you can tell them so. Let them be anathema. So verse 8 is about Scripture alone, and verse 7 is about the gospel. That's, that's the connection I want you to see. So go with me now just to clarify justification to chapter 2, verse 21. If you're watching in your Bible looking in your Bible. Let's do it together. Chapter 2, verse 21. And we'll end with clarifying briefly, and then you're going to get a whole message on it later, justification by faith alone, because that is the gospel of verse 7. I do not nullify, this is verse 21, chapter 2, I do not nullify the grace of God. What, What would make you think you were nullifying it? Why do you say that? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through law, Christ died to no purpose, in vain. Now, we're jumping in the middle here. I know that, but you can see this. You can see Paul is answering what question? The question, okay, what righteousness does a sinner need in order to be totally accepted, forgiven, justified, God being 100% for me. What kind of righteousness do I need for God to be 100% for me? And his answer is, I don't nullify the grace of God. That is, I would be nullifying the grace of God if 
righteousness were through the law, law law-keeping. So you got two choices, right? You can bank on Christ and His death for your righteousness, or you can bank on law-keeping, law, for your righteousness. And if you are led to trust in law-keeping for your justification, your getting into a right standing with God, then you treat Christ as though He's worthless. Now, somebody at Galatia is going to say, no, 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 that's not fair. You are distorting what these teachers say. That's not it, Paul. That's not what the Galatianists say. They're not saying the death of Christ is in vain. They are saying it's necessary. The death of Christ is necessary. They believe in the deity of Jesus. He's the Messiah. And His death was necessary. And and so is circumcision. So it's trusting Christ, being circumcised... And that'll work. And they say, you're wrong to caricature their position by playing off trust Christ alone versus trust law alone. No, it's not that way. That's a caricature. It's trust Christ and law, some, not all of it. We understand you can't be perfect. That's why Christ has to die, for goodness sakes. Just trust Christ and then add circumcision, and you'll be right with God. Now, here's Paul's response to that. Turn to chapter 5. These are probably the three most important verses in the book. Not sure. There's so many important verses. These three really cut to the heart of the matter. So the first three verses of chapter 5 go like this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, now, now let's pause here, that means accept it as an addition to what is required to get into a right relationship with God. It can't mean that it's sin to circumcise because he had Timothy circumcised. Circumcision is neither here nor there, he says in chapter 5. Neither here nor there. That's not, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. What he's reacting to is those that are taking this piece of Old Testament requirement and adding it to the requirement of faith as a way of getting into that relationship with God that would last forever as justified. So let me keep, keep reading. I stopped. Start at verse 2 again. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. That's astonishing. If you rely a little bit 
a little bit on law-keeping as a way of supplementing faith to get into a justified state, you're not saved. Christ is zero. He counts for nothing if he doesn't count for everything. Isn't that what verse 3 says? That's why it's just so astonishing. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. There are two ways to have righteousness. One is law-keeping. And if you go that route, you go all the way that route. One requirement implies you got to keep them all. you got to go the perfection route. Or you can go to Christ. You can go to Christ. He got the law totally right. He did the obedience that is absolutely necessary. He died the death. We have to die. He lived the life we have to live. So you can choose to diet and live it and fail. Or you can choose to go to Jesus and receive him. That's the two choices that we have. Paul said, it, is, it seems a light matter to mingle the law and the gospel, faith and works together. But it does more mischief than a man's reason can conceive. For it not only blemishes and darkens the knowledge of grace, but also takes away Christ and all his benefits and utterly overthrows the gospel. That's just straight out of Galatians 5, 1 to 3. You try to mingle in a little bit of law with faith in order to put yourself into a right standing with God and you will lose a right standing with God. So everybody in this room right now as I close is standing before two paths, right? Pretty clear. And the one path, we we all desperately need righteousness. And none of us has it. There's not a righteous person in this room. There's none righteous. No, not one, Paul says. And we have to have it. You don't go into the presence of God without righteousness. And you can go the, I will do what I have to do in order to get into that relationship. And the other is, I can't do it. I need a Savior. I need a substitute. I need a righteousness. I need forgiveness. I need a friend. I need a Lord. I need a treasure. And his name is Jesus. So I urge you, don't go down the law path. Just a closing word on the relationship between getting in through faith alone and the rest of your life. Here's where people stumble. You're going to go home this afternoon and you're going to open your Bible on almost any page and it will be telling you things to do. And in a few of those places, it will tell you, you have to do them. And you're going to start thinking, Piper got it wrong. Because it says in Hebrews 12, 14, 
pursue the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, ho, ho. Piper, totally. He was one of those angels. <laughs> there is a holiness without which you will not see the Lord. You will find a dozen statements like that in the New Testament. There is a life change requirement. James says faith without works is dead. Dead faith doesn't justify. Which means that such a stunning thing happens at the point of justification and union with Christ. Holy Spirit comes in. You're given a new nature. You're brought into rest. And he's 100% for me. This newness yields newness. Not perfection. You're not going to be perfect in this life. But you're going to hate sin from now on. You're going to make war on sin. You're not going to cozy up to sin and say, you're my favorite. You're my favorite. No Christian talks like that. When sin creeps in, gets the victory, you fall. You hate it. You hate what you are in your old nature. You hate that sin. You reject it. You fight back. And you stand afresh where you are. Isn't it amazing that Paul said in Galatians, cleanse out the old leaven because you are unleavened. That's crazy talk. Except for the gospel, right? Cleanse out the old leaven because there ain't any leaven in you. Another one last way to say it. I love to say to my church when I was there. <laughs> I'll say it here because I can't be there. The only sin that you can defeat in the Christian life is a forgiven sin. And if you get that, you get the gospel, which means the standing place is he's for me, who can be against me. And in that standing place, as I stumble into sin and I make war, I make war as a forgiven person, I make war as an accepted person, I make war as a loved person. That's your mantra here, I gather. You're going to say that over each other when you leave. You're loved. That's how you make war on sin. So, so I've, don't say when you leave. We just heard an, a sermon that says you can live like the devil and go to heaven. And don't leave saying you got to be holy to get into a right relationship with Jesus. And if you can understand how both of those can be rejected, you're getting real close to Christianity and the greatest news in the world. Justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. It's been preserved for us all these years, and we thank you for the Bible, not because we worship a book, but because we need to be saved. And we are so thankful that the Bible's message of justification has been preserved for us, and therefore we exalt you as the supreme authority over all the universe and under you that we have a place to stand on the Bible alone as our final and decisive authority here, and that it directs us to the best news in all the world that makes us want to stand on our head for joy. In Jesus' name.